0: Germany's renewable energy sector is among the most successful and innovative in the world. In fact, by 2017, more than a third of the nation's electricity came from renewable sources like wind and solar power. Not surprisingly, Germany's ambitious renewables agenda has led to a robust, active M&A market. But what are the specific risks for investors in this sector? Jones Day's Kirsten Henrik is here to tell us. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Kirsten Henrik is a partner in Jones Day's m practice. Based in Dusseldorf, she has more than 13 years of experience advising corporates and financial investors on complex m transactions, venture capital investments, and transactions in the renewable energy sector. You can find Kirsten's complete biography at jonesday.com. Kirsten, thanks for being with us today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome, Dave.
0: This is such an interesting topic, renewable energy. Everybody's interested. It's the right thing to do. Certainly, there's a global trend. It's clean, it's healthy, but there are opportunities for investors out there. It seems like no matter what's going on in the global economy, there's a lot of activity in terms of investment in the renewable energy sector. Now, having said that, you've been doing this for years, advising companies that invest in wind or solar in Germany for a long time. If you were to give a potential investor advice in just one sentence, what would you say? Don't
1: only check the land use agreements and permits but also the other topics behind which substantial financial risks may be concealed.
0: Substantial financial risks. That sounds loaded.
1: Well, apart from the terms of the project and financing contracts, of course, in many cases, these topics are invalid warranty bonds and contracts that have not been effectively concluded. One example is the topic of warranty bonds. Usually, there is a general contractor for the projects who builds the wind or solar park. The general contractor then provides a warranty bond for the work carried out by it. Such warranty bonds almost always contain conditions precedent or restrictions. Therefore, one should, of course, check during due diligence whether these conditions have been met and whether the restrictions lead to the warranty bond being worthless in the specific case.
0: Can you give us a specific, concrete example of what you're talking about?
1: A typical provision of the warranty bond is that the bond is provided for completed work that is accepted free of defects. Conversely, this means that the warranty bond will not take effect if the work's not accepted without defects.
0: But in cases like this, I'm under the impression that these sorts of defects are normally remedied.
1: Yes, indeed. By reputable general contractors, they do remedy these defects. But that alone is not enough according to the case law. In practice, there is no single wind or solar park where all work is accepted on the first acceptance date without any complaints. Usually, the acceptance is declared under a reservation, and individual defects are listed in a so-called punch list and then remedied. However, this is not sufficient to fulfill the condition of the warranty bond, because it is explicitly stated in the bond that it is provided for work accepted free of defects. In the case of acceptance subject to reservation, the work is not accepted free of defects, even if all defects are subsequently remedied. In this case, the warranty bond does not take effect at all.
0: If all the defects are remedied, it seems like it should be sufficient.
1: But that is not enough for the German courts. For example, in a judgment of August 2016, the Higher Regional Court of Frankfurt ruled that the subsequent abandonment of the reservations declared at acceptance can only be equated with unconditional acceptance if it is declared in writing. The defects discovered during the original acceptance must therefore not only be remedied, but the parties must also record in writing that the defects have been remedied and the customer acknowledges such fact. Otherwise, the warranty bond is not effective and the guarantor does not have to pay. Therefore, in practice, a second acceptance must take place, and it must be documented in writing that all defects have been remedied.
0: Well, that's an important point and sounds complicated. Give us another example of an ineffective warranty bond from your practice.
1: Yes, another issue is the lack of identity between the recipient of the warranty bond and the creditor of the principal claim. In many projects, the operating company of the project is a subsidiary of the general contractor. This means that the general contractor designs the project and then transfers all contracts and assigns its warranty claims against its subcontractors to the operating company. This need not be detrimental to the operating company if the subcontractors are in turn obliged to provide warranty bonds. but. If the subcontractor provides the general contractor with a warranty bond after the general contractor has already assigned its warranty claims against such subcontractor to the operating company, the warranty bond is invalid. Because at the time the warranty bond was issued, the creditor of the principal claim, that is in our case the operating company, and the recipient of the warranty bond, that is the general contractor, were not identical. However, such identity is a prerequisite for the effectiveness of the warranty bond.
0: Well, why wouldn't you just transfer the warranty bond to the operating company to get around this problem?
1: Unfortunately, this is not possible because the warranty bond is invalid from the outset.
0: Well, that's troubling and probably bad. Uh, You also mentioned ineffective contracts. Why is this a particular problem for wind or solar parks?
1: This has to do with the legal form of the operating companies. In most cases, they are limited partnerships, that is, German GmbH and co In addition, in many projects, the operating company is an affiliate of the general contractor. Unfortunately, this leads to more problems with Section 181 of the German Civil Code, that is, with a prohibition of self-dealings, than in other transactions. Often, the operating company and the general contractor are represented by the same persons when concluding contracts. In such cases, it is essential to make sure that these persons are exempt from the restrictions of Section 181 of the German Civil Code by both parties. In case of a limited partnership, one must check its partnership agreement in order to assess whether the managing director of the general partner is released from Section 181 of the German Civil Code.
0: But isn't that stated in the extract from the commercial register of the uh, general partner?
1: Yes, but that is not sufficient to check whether the exemption also applies to the partnership itself and not only to the general partner. The partnership itself must exempt both its general partner and the managing directors of such general partner from the restrictions of Section 181 of the German Civil Code. If the exemption is not granted directly in the partnership agreement, it can also be granted by shareholder resolution, with the majority required to change the partnership agreement. But, if neither possibility has been implemented, there is no effective exemption by the partnership, no matter what is stated in the commercial register of the general partner.
0: These are legally banal points. Are there topics that are actually quite easy to identify and which, based on your experience, are not assessed in practice?
1: Yes and no. Uh, There have already been cases in which the project developer unfortunately forgot to register the permit for his own wind farm before the statutory deadline expired, that is, before February 1st, 2017. This is is bad, of course, (laughs) but in fact, it's not not so common. Uh, More often, I have the impression that buyers sometimes set the wrong priorities in due diligence or give too little thought to how the various topics interrelate. For example, I've seen buyers who instructed their lawyers to assess the land use agreements in detail, which makes sense, but they did not check the status of the registration of the easements. In other cases, no one checked whether the disbursement conditions agreed in the financing contracts were really fulfilled or which subsequent conditions the financing contracts contained. This can also become really expensive later.
0: Kirsten, this has been intriguing. It's a very interesting and uh, constantly changing part of the law. Thanks for being with us today. Very informative, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you very much. To contact Kirsten Henrik, go to khenrich, that's H-E-N-R-I-C-H, at jonesday.com. For more information on Jones Day's mergers and acquisition practice, visit jonesday.com and click through to the practice page. You can subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please review. I'm Dave Dalton. You've been listening to Jones Day Talks. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.